the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This week is flying by. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you. Friday afternoon, News Talk 710 KNUS. Great to be with you today to wrap up the week and then to kick things off tomorrow morning with the Jimmy Sangenberger Show from 6 to 9 right here on News Talk 710 KNUS. Lots to discuss today, including... Last night's final meeting of the current board of the Denver Public Schools Board of Education, I got a nice shout-out from one of the departing board members. What did Tay Anderson have to say? We'll play the audio coming up in just a little bit. A very fascinating meeting, to be sure. If you want to join into the festivities, we'll open up the phones in a bit at 303 696-1971. You can text in on the 710-KNUS app on your smartphone as well. Name and town, name and town. If you wish to text in, please. And a couple of ways you can email yours truly, 247-365-1, 710-KNUS.com. Log on there and go to the Jimmy Sangenberger Show page. And you can email me via my website, jimmysangenberger.com. Of course, keep in mind... There's no A, I, or U in Sangenberger. It's all E's all the time. Once you know that, Sangenberger is easy. Now, of course, we've got lots to talk about when it comes to Denver stuff, but the economy continues to see ever so happening changes going on, including Somewhat of a decline in inflation that could be impacting the Federal Reserve's policies on interest rate increases. We're also seeing gas prices going down, which has been encouraging. I know yesterday I got gas for $2.22, and that was wild and totally um, kind of mind-blowing in the context of recent days. So good to experience that at the pump. And then, of course, we have the Biden-Xi meeting Joe Biden and Xi Jinping getting together a couple of days ago and having their conversation. What is that doing to markets? What is that signaling for investors? Let's talk about all these topics with Sam Burns. He is the chief strategist at Mill Street Research and joins us this afternoon for a bit of an economic discussion. Good afternoon, Sam. Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Jimmy. Thanks for having me on. Good to have you on. Thanks for taking some time today. So let's start with this inflation picture. I mean, we are still seeing prices difficult for folks at grocery stores and so forth, but we are seeing some positive indications from the most recent inflationary data. Uh, Let's just start there. What are we noticing? Yeah, that's right. The uh, kind of the rate of inflation uh, has really been coming down. Uh, So it's not so much that prices are going back to where they were in 2019, but really that's just after having gone up quite a bit, uh, they've kind of slowed down a lot and and probably going to be stopped going up so much uh, now. And we've seen that uh, in a lot of different areas. 
Um, but uh, but things like you know used cars, uh, oil prices. You mentioned uh, a lot of things have been kind of bringing the inflation rate down, and I think that's uh, that's a good sign. Uh, means that the uh, the Federal Reserve won't have to raise rates much anymore. Yeah, let's talk about that. I mean, why for for folks who don't follow the Fed very closely, why do they look at this inflationary picture and say? Okay, we have to increase the federal funds rate to help try and get a handle on this. Right. Well, one of their big jobs, really, that they were given by Congress is to try to keep inflation down and ideally employment up. Those are their two sort of goals overall. And so the way, the main way they do that is by raising interest rates if they think there's uh, too much uh, demand for things, people out, you know, spending too much money, buying too many things relative to the supply. And so if, uh, if they see that and they see inflation going up, then they feel like they, they raise rates and that slows things down. If you have to pay more for mortgages or you know, car loans, things like that, then you know, you'll have less to spend uh, at, the, at the store and that'll bring inflation down. And then the reverse, they, they'll tend to cut interest rates if things are slow and they want to kind of boost things. So uh, what they've seen lately, of course, is inflation has been high after COVID and then it's been starting to come back down again. They've raised rates quite a bit, as you, I'm sure everyone's noticed. Um, and you see mortgage rates, auto rates uh, much higher now, and that's having an effect on slowing down demand. And that's uh, that's the way they kind of uh, act to kind of bring inflation back down. How does the jobs picture fit into that? So we're seeing a little above four or three percent unemployment um, right now, or is it at three point nine percent? So nearly four percent nationally, and uh, that's you know not not bad, except. We have a pretty high labor force or pretty low labor force participation rate. That is to say people that are actually in the workforce. And of course, this jobs picture does play a role in what the Fed decides to do relative to interest rates. Talk to us a little bit about that. That's right. That's right. Yeah, the unemployment rate and the number of people working has been pretty strong overall and probably a lot stronger than people thought it might be given what's happened in the world and the economy the last few years. Uh, but I think that's uh, it's a good sign in the sense that if people have jobs and are getting raises, uh, you know that's what you want and that's what the Fed wants. Um, the question is just a matter of well, is it, is it too much of a good thing if, uh, if people are spending too much money too fast and they feel like they got to rein it in a little bit? Uh, but overall, I think it's it's a pretty good backdrop um, that, that employment has held up as well as it has. And uh, uh, I think that's a, a reason why there's still, you know, retail spending, things like that have been holding up um, pretty well overall. People have money to spend, and it's just a little bit uh, more, uh, costs more to borrow money now than it did. But overall, there's, uh, there's more money out there to spend. So I think companies have been kind of uh, eager to, to continue to hire uh, after having a, a lot of trouble finding employees for, for the last couple of years. And uh, so now they've, uh, you know, a lot, of people, a lot more people have jobs, and that's a good sign. Um, and so the Fed tends to look at that as, uh, you know, there are two things. They want inflation down and employment up, and it's getting closer to that point now. However, I mentioned the labor force participation rate, and we have seen that rate around 62, 63 percent pretty consistently for quite some time. And it has definitely, while it's risen since covid a little bit, it's still in a position where you have a lot of folks that have been on the sidelines. So while you have a good unemployment, relatively good unemployment rate for those who are in the job market, you do still have, for whatever reason, this doggone 63% or less labor force participation rate. No, you're right. And uh, and particularly after COVID, uh, what you saw is a lot of people kind of left the labor force. 
Um, now, some of that is just people getting older. You know, everyone's uh, the baby boom generation is getting past 65. You know, and and they've kind of dropped out of the labor force, uh, just retired, uh, not working anymore. Um, and so, and then you also had, of course, people who you know got sick or things and had to to, to kind of drop out of the labor force, uh, and maybe some of them haven't all come back. Uh, so yeah, you're right. There are definitely people who aren't counted as unemployed because they're really not counted as even looking for a job or, or working at all, and, uh, and that number hasn't ca- caught up. Uh, so when you look at the numbers and you look at just people, say, between the ages of 25 and 54, which is the way the government kind of defines that kind of age when most people would normally be working, meaning uh, excluding people who are retired or people who are younger or in school, and uh, that actually that number is actually up uh, pretty high. It's up around 82, 83 percent which is uh, a little bit higher than it was before COVID hit and uh, about as high as it's been in the last 20, 25 years. So a lot of that, what you're talking about, I think, is, is what uh, I think of as demographics in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, the, the whole country getting older and the baby boom generation in particular, that big generation has been kind of getting uh, old enough to, to not really uh, be in the labor force as much anymore. So that's kind of kept that number down. Uh, in addition to all the kind of knock-on effects from from COVID and, and everything else. Again, we're talking with Sam Burns, Chief Strategist at Mill Street Research. Let's talk for just a moment, if we could, about the earnings picture as well. Yes, we're seeing inflation get more under control, although, of course, we're still at a much higher baseline than we were a few years ago. That's meaning that uh, you're not going to see prices, as you noted, drop from now. You're going to see them increase at a much slower pace, but folks are still struggling. And we haven't necessarily seen the earnings picture look that great relative to inflation, which is one of the reasons why people have been struggling more at the, um, thankfully, we'll talk gas prices in a moment. They're going down a bit, but still folks have been struggling to pay for gas at the pump to get to work. They've been struggling more for groceries at the grocery store and the earnings just haven't really kept up well enough. Uh, that's right. That's right. And when anytime you get uh, big kind of changes in, in prices like we've had the last three years or so, uh, you're going to see that kind of effect where uh, it's harder for people to keep up with uh, with those big changes in terms of their, their earnings, their income. Um, so, you know, in aggregate, there's still been people still getting raises. There, there are still increases in income, but whether they're fast enough for everybody uh, to keep up, uh, and particularly if you're, you know, maybe older on a fixed income, then it definitely uh, it, it makes it harder when, when prices have moved up, even if they're going up more slowly now, uh, to, to, to necessarily keep up. So I think you've had a bigger... Uh, kind of range in terms of how uh, people are affected by those prices than we've had in the past. Uh, when prices were more stable, then you didn't see that as much. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right that uh, that's been the concern a lot of people have had is um, if prices aren't going to go back down, then you kind of have to, you know, wait for your wages to catch up to them, and, and that can take a while sometimes. We're also seeing, I mentioned gas prices, Uh, oil prices have gone down, and so therefore gas prices have gone down. Uh, We don't have too many places that are at about $2.20 or $2.30 around the Denver metro area, but there are several. We certainly see gas prices going down around the country, although I think Colorado is probably benefiting a little bit more than some other parts of the nation. But what are we seeing is happening in oil, and does this have to do with... uh, Saudi Arabia and OPEC increasing production, or at least anticipated on doing so. Uh, yeah, you're right. The oil prices have come down quite a bit, and that's helped uh, gas prices. Uh, OPEC has actually been trying to make oil prices go up and cutting production over the last six to 12 months, 
but uh, they haven't been real successful uh, in part because the U.S. is actually producing uh, more oil than it uh, has previously. Uh, so a lot of the oil output that's been uh, helping that price go down has been uh, coming out of the U.S., uh, also seeing that a lot of the uh, you know, the restrictions that we were put on, say, Russia or Iran or the other sources of, of oil uh, haven't limited the amount of oil actually being produced. It's just made it kind of go somewhere else. And um, other places like Venezuela may be coming back online that have been kind of not producing as much for a while. So there, there's other sources of oil beside, outside of OPEC uh, that have been increasing their production, even while OPEC's been trying to cut their production. And so I think the balance there has been kind of caused a lot of volatility, but it's it's basically been uh, pushing prices down. And then the, the demand for, for oil in the world right now just isn't as strong as it used to be. Uh, China in particular uh, has had a kind of a weaker economy lately, and they've historically been a big source of oil demand and just aren't, aren't, aren't doing as much as they used to. So I think that's helped uh, oil prices come down. And now even things like uh, you know gasoline and diesel that had been uh, kind of kept high by refinery problems have, have also those have been resolved. And so you've got refiners able to produce more gasoline and that's helped the prices come down as well. So yeah, you're right. The uh, you know the national price uh, across the country was you know 390 or so back in September, and now it's 333 according to the latest data. So uh, it's really come down pretty sharply just in the last uh, you know two months or so. Uh, you mentioned China; their economy has been struggling dramatically, which has some folks thinking, okay. This helps explain why Xi Jinping would come from China to meet with Biden in San Francisco a couple of days ago, because there's tensions going on between our two countries. There's, of course, the trade picture that fits into that. And when China's economy is stalling, the question about whether they really want to be so antagonistic to the United States has been coming up. It was interesting to see some of the comments that came afterwards. Of course, Xi Jinping also met with American business leaders and notably didn't talk so much about trade and investment. What do you make of what's happening in China and this meeting on Wednesday between Biden and Xi, Sam Burns? No, I think you're right that uh, China's economy is facing a lot of headwinds and they're not in a good position to, uh, you know, to, to risk a big trade war or anything else that would really hurt their economy. Um, and I think that uh, Xi's trip over here was meant to try to smooth things out a bit. Uh, I think the general view was that uh, he was a lot more kind of softer, more conciliatory uh, towards the U.S. than maybe he's been in the past. And I think that they're concerned that uh, that their economy will slow even further if the friction between the U.S. and China gets any worse. So I think he was here to try to uh, you know, make people more comfortable with the idea of doing business with China and, uh, and trying to smooth some of that tension out. And uh, and I think so so far as what I can see in the news, it looks like that was somewhat successful. Um, but I think that uh, yeah, the Chinese economy is struggling. Chinese stocks have been struggling, and uh, and that's been having an impact on on a lot of uh, all of Asia in some ways. And so from a, a, the standpoint of investors, how do you think they're looking at what happened on Wednesday? Is it an encouraging sign, particularly for American investors? Is it an encouraging sign for the global economic picture? And um, as far as things like trade and investment, or is it sort of like a shrug? Uh, well, I think anything where there's a lot of just you know political uh, you know handshaking and things is uh, rarely going to get a lot of uh, you know real attention from investors, but I think the idea is that if some of the uh, trade issues that uh, have been in place for quite a while get turned kind of toned down, 
uh, that'll help U.S. companies uh, that, that want to sell into China, and it will uh, potentially even reduce some of the cost for U.S. consumers who are buying things from China where there are tariffs and things that have been in place um, uh, to, that have made things more expensive uh, for, for U.S. companies. So if that kind of gets toned down, um, then that would be a good thing for U.S. companies. It would also probably be a good thing for U.S. investors uh, and uh, and U.S. consumers, uh, and it would also, you know, then probably have a side effect of maybe helping China a little bit in terms of uh, reducing the headwinds on their economy. But I think, generally speaking, investors like to see uh, less trade friction uh, rather than more. So if if this kind of a visit from uh, from Xi Jinping helps reduce trade friction, uh, they'll consider that a good thing. Just a couple of minutes left with our guest, Sam Burns, chief strategist at Mill Street Research. And I want to kind of wrap up more broadly. We have more economic data being released today and next week, building permits and housing starts. You've got, of course, the Fed, uh, Federal Open Market Committee next week. You've got initial jobless claims that we'll see and more coming out with oil. What will you be watching? What should folks who might be interested in some of the economic data be paying attention to over the next week or so? Yeah, you're right. I think uh, the, the housing market data, some of which uh, came out today and we'll get a little more uh, next week, um, you know, is a focus just because the impact of mortgage rates has been such a, uh, you know, a key thing um, for a lot of investors and, and a lot of consumers, too, lately, uh, to see how much impact that's having. Because uh, that's really where the first kind of sign that where the Federal Reserve is looking at to see because housing prices, of course, are much more affected by mortgage rates and things than uh, than, than anything else. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I think uh, you're going to look for signs that Federal Reserve officials, when they make their you know public statements, uh, are going to kind of talk about uh, you know waiting and seeing and, and kind of you know progress on inflation. Those kind of uh, comments would indicate that they're probably not going to raise rates uh, either at their next meeting or, or early next year. And I think that will keep uh, investors on more of an even keel, I think, than they've been for a while. Uh, I think it's been a volatile time for, for anyone who's investing in the bond market, for sure. And that's kind of rolled over in the stock market uh, volatility as well. So I think as long as that uh, kind of calms down and people think the Fed is going to stay on the sidelines, uh, that'll be a good thing to, uh, for investors. Sam Burns, chief strategist at Mill Street Research. We've got to leave it there, but appreciate your time and insights this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Jimmy. You bet. Thank you. We'll have you on again sometime soon. Again, Sam Burns joining us, Mill Street Research. Some interesting discussion on what's happening economically as we wrap up the week. And we did see some increases positively today in the stock market with the S&P, the NASDAQ, and the Dow up ever so slightly today after a couple of days ago when Xi Jinping and Biden met in San Francisco. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more coming up. News Talk 710 KNUS. You're listening to Jimmy Sangenberger. Stay with us. Uh, Bottom of the three o'clock hour. Jimmy Sangenberger back with you live and local. News Talk 710 KNUS 303-696-1971. Our telephone number if you'd like to join in to the festivities. Interesting conversation with Sam Burns' last segment about the economic picture. And it's something that Biden really wants to make you think is super rosy. Pointing out, I think just yesterday, about the disconnect between the economic data and what people are feeling. I acknowledge there's a disconnect between the numbers and how people feel about their place in the world right now. We can deal with the second part. We can deal with the second part. We can make you feel so much better. 
Well, I mean, it is going to be good for people going to the gas pump and finding cheaper gas. That's nice. And while the inflation picture is a little bit rosier as far as price increases, it's still not so great. And the fact is that the prices aren't going down. You're still going to have eggs what they are, chicken what it is, beef what it is, milk what it is. And it ain't going down. And we're getting in the holiday season, Thanksgiving next week, Christmas coming up, all the other things. And Biden's talking about the disconnect and how we're going to fix it. We're going to fix that disconnect, make you feel better than you are. Because we look at the data and it's rosier than how you're feeling. Well, guess what? This is one of the things. So Ben Shapiro likes to say facts don't care about your feelings. Well, guess what? And this is something that... To an extent, Biden is feeling, although the facts actually belie some of what he's saying anyway, such as the fact that you aren't going to see prices go down for most things from where they are now. So people are still going to be struggling. But we do see inflation looking a little bit better. But facts may not care about your feelings, but guess what? Feelings don't care about your damn facts. And so Biden can make all... The arguments he wants, oh, we want to fix the disconnect. The numbers are rosier than you're feeling. That ain't going to cut it, is it? It's not going to cut it, yet he still wants to insist his economic policies, Bidenomics are just rosy. My approach here in the United States from the moment my administration took office, we're building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up. Trickle-down economy worked okay sometimes. But not a whole lot trickled down on my dad's kitchen table. Mm. Ah, there you go. Trickle down economics, which isn't a thing. But I'm not going to get into that tangent. That's the kind of argument that Biden wants to make. Feel that you're better off than you are. It's not an easy thing to sell. That's for darn sure. So last night was the final school board meeting of the current board of education that includes one Tay Anderson who decided against running for office. And, well, here's why, according to him in his farewell speech yesterday, the outgoing school board member said he's running for the state house and not for the Board of Education in a re-election. It became very clear to me that every student in Colorado should benefit from the progress we've made in Denver public schools. That is why I chose not to run for re-election. And that is why I am running to be the next state house representative from House District 8. Just, I can't help but laugh. All the progress in Denver Public Schools, it's just so much. I can't just be on the school board. I got to bring the progress to the entire state of Colorado by going to the legislature. Send me to the House and I'm going to bring DPS progress to the legislature. I don't think that word progress means what you think it means, Tay Anderson. Now, the most controversial school board member in probably the history of Denver School Board, and at least one of them in the history of the school boards writ large in the state of Colorado, 
also said, you know what, this term would be different. Madam President and members of the board, I am proud to report, according to Proverbs, or excuse me, Second Timothy verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Four years ago, we stood in this very same room as I, thanks mom, as I raised my hand to take the oath of office, becoming the youngest African American in Colorado history to assume public office and the 12th African American to be elected to the Denver School Board in our 160 year history, I promised you community that this term in office would be different. Oh, and it sure was different. That's for darn sure was it different. I mean, we had a a school board member go on Nine News and try and make a comparison that even Kyle Clark said, you know what, that's ridiculous. Uh, But I do know that once we get into this practice of saying this is what's happened outside of school grounds, you've been charged for it or you may have not been charged for it, you've been accused for it, etc. Then we get into what else are we going to start uh, hammering kids for, uh, you know, a kid steals something at the, the mall. Do we now check that student every day because, you know, I asked something you about an attempted murder and you're I, talking to me about shoplifting. Well, right? I'm talking about how this can actually go through a magnitude of crimes. If we open the door for this, what other doors will we open uh, when it relates to other crimes that could be committed by students outside of the district's hours that we actually have the student? It sure was different. He also didn't seem to learn a lesson about school resource officers and how they needed to be brought back because he really, really touted. The achievement of taking law enforcement officers, cops from campuses, back in 2020. In June of 2020, I, alongside Vice President Jennifer Bacon, led the charge to get the board unanimously in the contract with the Denver Police Department. For those that need it broken down, I'm going to go ahead and call roll call, Madam, uh, Ms. Atwood. Director Anderson was an I. Director Balderman was an I. Director Bacon was an I. Director Cobion was an I. Director Lorvik was an I. Director O'Brien was an I. And Dr. Olson was an I. That was unanimous support to remove SROs. This action resulted in a 90% reduction in tickets and arrests, effectively ending what we knew as the school-to-prison pipeline. This action saved black and brown children from the criminal justice system. So, uh, two things about that. Number one, that happened at the beginning of his term of office. Before the end of his term of office, they totally rescinded that achievement that he had made because it failed so flagrantly that parents rose up and said, this is absurd. This is absurd. What are you doing? We need law enforcement back in schools. That is point number one. But then he also keeps citing this term, oh, well, the, the, the drop in tickets, 80% drop in tickets. Yet, as I clarified months ago, the drop in tickets is largely because of something called a discipline matrix, which parents are really advocating to get significantly changed, and the district has been dragging its feet. 
This discipline matrix excessively restricts when law enforcement could be called upon for issues. School property destruction at any taxpayer cost or amount or frequent marijuana use on campus, no referral allowed. So, of course, you're going to see tickets go down, and it's not like tickets are really going up dramatically since the return of cops on campus. As I understand it, they aren't dramatically returning. Yet it was an achievement worthy of touting. He insists. He also blasted his critics, including the high school students who passionately protested him in 2021. I was down there. He was censured by the school board on September 17th, 2021. And in that censure, it was because a report came back from an investigation finding that he had coercively attempted to date multiple underage students and had actively intimidated witnesses on at least two occasions during this investigation. And other findings that were deeply disturbing, worthy of censure. He's still not over it. Well, on the following Monday, a thousand DPS students walked out of their high schools and marched down to the headquarters. In the big protest, I went to North High School and I did not expect that I would have to Uber back to my car, but that's what I did because it was a 45 minute walk, including across I-70 because of these kids. Well, he's not over the fact that the kids protested him. It has come with us having to weather unimaginable storms like the one that took place in 2021, where my colleagues from this institution and those in community believed a lie that originated from my very own Carolyn Bryant and proliferated by extreme MAGA Republicans and anti-black Democrats. Many folks in this room do not know the pain that I went through trying to defend my slandered name and reputation. The individuals that shared my own beautiful black skin abandoned me for their own political agendas. And we had students outside of these walls of this building call for me to be imprisoned, hung, and castrated. I don't remember seeing much of that rhetoric and those signs that the kids were caring. Now, there were some vulgar words that were used, but, gosh, he paints the picture. But it's the same picture. He went under the Brother Jeff show in 2021, and he compared those kids to January 6th. He just can't get over it. And by by the way, uh, Carolyn Bryant was the woman who accused teenager Emmett Till falsely and resulting in him being lynched in 1955. That was just so you know what that comparison was. But you know what? You listen to Tay and guess what? The cynics did not win. I am here to report report to our community that the cynics did not win. And now I'm standing here as the vice president of the Denver School Board, the president Outgoing. of the Colorado Black Caucus of School Board Directors. Outgoing. And I didn't make it here alone. I made it here because of the folks in our community that put their own reputations on the line, that put their own careers on the line. I'm here because of folks like Director Esserman and Director Quattlebaum who picked me up and gave me a job Ooh. and said, I got you when there was nobody else in my corner. I'm here because of the unconditional love of a black single mother. Maya Angelou once said, you may write me down in history with your bitter twisted lies you may trod me in the very dirt but still like dust i'll rise i have to say he's a real compelling good speaker but 
I haven't gotten to my favorite part. So I was there. I was sitting in the back. I was taking notes. I was texting with people. As I was observing this meeting, I was literally in the back corner chair. You can't see me on the video feed because I was on the opposite side of the room. But there's a part of the speech where a a certain radio host and columnist gets a a little bit of a shout-out from good old Tay Anderson. Because of my service to Denver Public Schools, I have been able to travel across America. Yes, Jimmy, across America. Sharing the great work that that we have been doing... (laughs) that we have been doing and working on and becoming a mentor to new school board members to ensure they have the tools to be successful in their respective cities. Being able to travel across America would not have been possible if I was not elected to the Denver School Board. We should strive to be a district that ensures our students should be able to see the world without needing a title or to be elected to this school board. He was looking back at me during those words, and everybody in the room zeroed in on me. It was interesting. It was real interesting. Why did he say that, though? Because I've been critical of the fact that he went $13,000 over the school board budget that members are supposed to have in the fiscal year 2022-2023, mostly for these conferences that he thinks are all so important. So important. Such a big deal. And I was saying, look, this is ridiculous. That amount of money on these trips. Oh, and by the way, $1,600 in private movie screenings for Wakanda Forever and The Little Mermaid. Let's not forget that as well. He didn't mention that in the speech, though, although I think that probably has something to do with how every student should be able to go attend a movie. As a student in DPS, that's that's probably what it has to do. Although I don't know who went to the private movie screenings of those films. I just know that they were DPS sponsored events that he put on. But nothing tops the end of his speech. By the way, I should note before I get to this and then we'll wrap up the segment. Charmaine Lindsay, who's leaving the board, was first up. Her campaign manager spoke. Then Charmaine gave a speech. Then Scott Balderman had the teachers union president for DCTA in Denver speak on his behalf. Balderman did not give remarks. And then they went to Tay Anderson. It was 36 minutes of a school board member celebration. And the school board member celebration had 14 minutes total until... Charmaine Lindsay and Scott Balderman's portions were done. And then it went to Tay Anderson for the next 22 minutes. Scott Esserman came out from the dais to the podium with his hat on backwards, and he gave a few minutes of a speech about Tay. Then a teacher did, and then Tay came out down to the podium and spoke for 10 to 12 minutes. And you heard some clips. Well, here is how it ended when he called up his supporters behind him. I always knew my time here was not going to be permanent, and I was on loan from the people of Denver to the Denver Public Schools. And now it is time. Now it is time that I return to the people of Denver. 
Finally, he put on his hat. Backwards. I will never close the door to serving again in the Denver public schools. So be prepared when I invoke my inner coach prime and I say, Median, give me my theme music. Thank you, Denver Public Schools. They're dancing and waving their arms left and right. It was, what was I watching? I was waiting for him to break out, though, into his own rap. I'm just chilling at the crib and making policy. They say they want some drastic changes here, but here we go. It's folks not helping all our kids when they can hardly read. And somehow I get all the blame, and that's what bothers me. Spending 250 k Ah, my harmonica accompaniment. With good old Stephen Tub. I have been able to travel across America. Yes, Jimmy, across America. We'll be back. Jimmy Sangenberger here with you on a Friday afternoon. News Talk 710 KNUS. Homie. Wrapping up and winding down, 3.52 p.m. Gotta love a little Robert Cray as we come back. Best bumper music known to man, 10 years running. Yours truly on 710KNUS. Back in the saddle tomorrow morning from 6 until 9 with the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. Then Thanksgiving week, Jeff Hunt will be in the chair from the Centennial Institute, of course, and the Frontier Freedom Hour on Sundays. And he'll be in the saddle every day, but Thanksgiving next week. And then I shall return the following week. For more engaging, intelligent talk, sang style as we begin the month of December. At the end of that week, if you can believe it, where, oh, where is the time going? How is it flying by so extra fast? Lots happening, lots to keep tabs on, of course, and that includes the special session in the Colorado State Legislature right now. Reading from the Denver Post, Colorado Democrats' main property relief bill passes Senate committee in the special session. And there's all this touting, oh, this is a tax cut, this is a tax cut. This isn't a tax cut. It's not really a property tax cut. Republicans have proposed bills that would actually cut the assessment rate. An actual tax cut. Instead, this is let's do some credits. Let's do some exemptions. This and that. I write about it in my column today for the Denver Gazette. Lower our property taxes simply. But it is such a game that they are playing in the legislature. And you don't have to be partisan Republican to recognize that the Democrats are playing partisan political games here. So much so that even Kyle Clark called them out for it last night on NBC. No matter what you believe about tax policy, I bet you believe in honesty and respect. 
The Democrats who control government in Colorado should show more of both to voters. Democrats have to decide whether they're going to go after Tabor refunds again, right after voters rejected their Prop HH tax plan by 19 points. That's a nearly 20-point loss for Democrats. And the state where Democrats have been winning statewide by nearly 20 points. Was that a wake-up call? Nope. Democrats are saying that there's no way to know if the shellacking is because Coloradans want to keep their Tabor refunds. Because, you know, that Prop HH was just so darn complicated. Who made it complicated? It was Democrats who put Prop HH on the ballot, knowing that it was at best complicated and at worst deceptive. And I would bet that they know that the overwhelming opposition to their tax plan was because Coloradans want to keep their Tabor refunds. Why can we assume that? Well, because Democrats' messaging on Prop HH misleadingly claimed that it preserved Tabor refunds. Come on, you wouldn't say that unless it's what voters wanted to hear. What I'd like voters to hear is more honesty and more respect from the single party that controls state government. Glad to hear Kyle say it. I wrote last week about the dysfunction that was rejected in Denver with the school board race, in Aurora with the municipal races, and in Prop HH. And I pointed out that complexity. Oh, they're claiming it was just so complicated for the little people of Colorado to understand. They just couldn't comprehend it with their little pea brains. It was too complicated. Well, they do continue to keep it so convoluted. This plan that they've got, this scheme in the legislature, has a number of layers and aspects to it rather than being just simple and straightforward. So why do Democrats feel compelled to keep making property tax relief so convoluted rather than adopting straightforward solutions? As I point out in today's Denver Gazette, this strategy is their only shot at circumventing Tabor's constraints, hiding behind unnecessarily complex changes that wouldn't stand a chance if they were transparent, straightforward, and put before the voters. Ain't that the truth? We'll get an update tomorrow from someone in the legislature on where things are at in the special session on the Jimmy Sangenberger Show. We'll also go through some more things from the Denver School Board meeting and much more to discuss. Tune in then and join into the conversation as well. Brandon Tatum up next. I'm back in live and local restarting the weekend tomorrow morning. Have a great one and a great weekend and may God bless America. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.